0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Tonight, advocates for an Indigenous voice to Parliament reject a suggestion the wording of the referendum question should change. Also, the government's kick-started a conversation on the future of superannuation. We'll hear why the coalition isn't interested in change when Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor joins us.
2: The moment they're floating balloons, they do a lot of that. What we do know is they made a very clear commitment to the Australian people before the election that they weren't going to make changes to super.
1: And staff shortages bite across the nation's schools and boosting top teachers' pay is the latest proposal. Could it work? I think it is a crisis in schools,
3: but I also think we've got to get it right. The getting it right part to me is more important right now than trying to put in a whole lot of band-aid measures and quick fixes that actually are not sustainable.
1: Thanks for your company. A referendum on a new Indigenous advisory body known as a voice to parliament will happen sometime between October and December, according to the Prime Minister, and there's already plenty of debate about the merits of such a body. There's also been concerns raised by some that the current form of words proposed by Anthony Albanese to amend the Constitution could result in multiple court challenges – Now, one supporter of The Voice has proposed an alternative that allows for a voice to Parliament but not a voice to executive government, that is, ministers and public servants. And as Isabel Massali reports, he believes it has a better chance of gaining support from the Australian people.
0: As the Prime Minister arrived in WA's north, he was asked if there's a disconnect between debate on The Voice and the issues faced by those living in remote parts of the country. Housing issues, alcohol problems and youth crime have dominated recent media coverage in the state.
4: Well, we know that when you consult any group of people about matters that affect them, you will get better outcomes. And that is what The Voice is.
0: But the path to the referendum is still quite long, with Anthony Albanese revealing it'll be held sometime between October and December. Today, a question around the wording of the proposed constitutional amendment From human rights lawyer, academic and Jesuit priest, Father Frank Brennan, speaking with commercial radio station
5: 2GB. What was proposed originally by the Referendum Council, that people like Noel Pearson, they recommended a voice to Parliament, full stop a voice to parliament. Now, once you make it to executive government, then as you rightly said, you're not only looking at actions by ministers, but also by public servants. Now, if you're gonna have a constitutional entity, the voice, which has a constitutional entitlement to make representations to public servants, you create a problem.
0: Frank Brennan says it would lead to litigation in the high court. He says as a supporter of the voice, he's proposed different wording which he argues
5: would make it watertight. I think it should be this. There shall be an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice with such structures and functions as the Parliament deems necessary to facilitate consultation prior to the making of special laws with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and with such other functions as the Parliament determines.
0: A voice to Parliament would be a permanent body representing First Nations people that would advise government on policies and laws which impact their lives. Professor Gabrielle Appleby says it's a simple idea and now we're in the technical weeds of turning that idea into constitutional language. But she says the current draft wording represents years of work and consultations. Professor Appleby is a constitutional law expert and was an advisor on the Uluru Statement from the Heart.
6: In relation to the proposed um, amendment that Father Frank Brennan has put up, I think there's a lot of jumping at constitutional shadows and concerns that the um, majority of legal opinion uh, indicate are not serious risks um, the proposal that's been put up is not a proposal I don't think that would um uh, garner more support I think it's a proposal that would garner less support and why do you say that the uh, restriction of the voices uh, function of um Consulting with the uh, parliament to only special laws with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that removes the ability of the voice to make Um, uh, It's views known with respect to more general laws that have a particular impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Think laws around voter ID, think laws around environmental um, protection, which of course intersect closely with cultural heritage protection, education and health, where we know there are really poor socioeconomic um, uh, and health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
0: Professor Appleby also went on to say a range of legal experts do not hold concerns about successful legal challenges, which Father Brennan has raised. Associate Professor Hannah McGlade is a member of the UN Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues and is an advocate for The Voice.
3: Let's not forget that there was a very solid proposal, a process leading up to the Uluru uh, statement from the heart, And it seems to me that actually the referendum question that's been developed by the Prime Minister is very sound. I would say that the um, alternative language now being promoted by uh, Father Frank Brennan um, is, is possibly quite inappropriate, really. And while Father Brennan is
0: supportive of The Voice, Dr McGlade says this argument could be harmful.
3: There has certainly been a great deal of scaremongering, I would say, Again, I think this is, a, this is a part of a campaign to defeat a historic uh, constitutional referendum process uh, that will give Aboriginal people a right to have a say about laws and matters impacting Aboriginal people and communities today.
1: That's Associate Professor Hannah McGlade, Isabel Masali reporting. A senior government lawyer has admitted he didn't pass on legal advice about the so-called RoboDebt Scheme even though that advice warned the debt recovery program was unlawful. The Royal Commission is investigating whether anyone within the government or public service was recklessly indifferent to the scheme's unlawfulness. Rachel Mealy reports.
7: Paul Menzies-McVeigh became the chief legal counsel at the Department of Social Services in May 2019. At that stage, the government's automated debt recovery scheme, known as RoboDebt, had been running for almost three years. Paul Menzies-McVeigh told the Royal Commission he disregarded legal advice which said the scheme was unlawful because he thought it had been superseded.
4: In the sense, I didn't need to go back and explore that history because sort of a, a better result was already underway.
7: The debt recovery scheme looked at how much a welfare recipient had received and then used income data from the tax office to estimate how much that recipient had been overpaid and then sent that person a debt notice. The problem was the scheme was unlawful. It used income data averaged out over a period, which led to incorrect calculations. Commissioner Catherine Holmes wasn't happy with Mr Menzies-McVeigh's answer.
8: But you have this... Advice which says that the Act does not accommodate averaging. That's the effect of it, that averaging is not a thing you can do under the Social Security Act. Somebody in your department has received that advice in August the previous year and absolutely nothing has happened. Is that not a concern? Do you not worry about the practices of the department and make some inquiries to see how did that happen? I didn't.
4: Undertake an an investigation of the circumstances of that commissioner. Um,
8: Did you just ask anybody what happened?
4: um, I I don't recall doing that.
8: The Robodebt
7: scheme was scrapped by the government in late 2019, but with every month it went on, more and more people were caught in its trap the Commissioner asked Mr Menzies-McVeigh again why he didn't immediately bring the advice to anyone's
8: attention. This is a bit of a concern because it is saying that a program which the government's been operating for a couple of years now actually is illegal. So it doesn't trouble you that that's been left to fester? Uh, uh, Commissioner,
4: I I think what I would say is that I don't think the advice... I mean, it's certainly a very important point that the, the way that social security benefits are calculated in social security law requires evidence of actual earnings, not averaged earnings. And that's a completely you know, an important point.
7: As the years of the robo-debt scheme rolled on, there was more and more media coverage highlighting the unfairness of the scheme. At one point, the Commonwealth Ombudsman looked into robo-debt, but its investigation didn't find anything untoward. Michael Johnson is the Assistant Secretary of the Office of Legal Services Coordination of the Attorney-General's Department. He began working there in 2019, but was asked why that office hadn't been more proactive in seeking legal advice.
2: I mean, I think a a retrospective review of of what happened here can only reach one conclusion. Um, and that's probably that the system didn't work.
7: The Royal Commission will call more witnesses from the Department of Human Services and the Department of Social Services in coming days.
1: Rachel Mealy there. The Prime Minister says his government makes no apologies for sparking a debate over superannuation changes as it considers reining in tax subsidies for wealthy Australians with very large super accounts, Treasurer Jim Chalmers yesterday questioned whether the current system is sustainable, pointing out superannuation tax discounts will cost more than the age pension by 2050. Today, Mr Albanese indicated he's happy for the debate to continue.
4: My government makes no apologies for pointing out uh, what uh, the future looks like in 10, 20 years' time if there isn't a debate about
1: change. Anthony Albanese there. The Shadow Treasurer is Angus Taylor. Angus Taylor, thanks for your time. I want to ask you the same question I asked Stephen Jones yesterday. Do you think it's fair and sustainable for the mega rich to have tens of millions of dollars in superannuation and reaping all the tax benefits that come with that?
2: Well, I think uh, I'd make two points about that, David. The first is uh, that Labor made a very clear promise Uh, that they weren't going to play with super, they weren't going to change super. It was made unambiguously by the Prime Minister before the election and election promises like that really count. Australians should be able to count on it. The second point is that I think any change to super needs to be treated with great caution. Um, People are making investments over long periods of time. Um, They've got to have confidence in the system and so change risks undermining the confidence that Australians have in the system. And for that reason, we should be very cautious about those changes. The government, though, hasn't announced any policy
1: yet. No, exactly. So they've just sparked a discussion, which is why I'm asking you, if you think that sort of arrangement, tens of millions of dollars in super, sometimes $100 million in super, whether that's fair and sustainable?
2: Well, I haven't seen any proposal from Labor, as you rightly pointed out. And so we'll look at that. Um, when they put something up at the moment, they're floating balloons. They do a lot of that. Um, What we do know is they made a very clear commitment to the Australian people before the election that they weren't going to make changes to super, just as they made a commitment that they weren't going to make changes to franking credits, and yet we've seen legislation introduced into the parliament uh, to uh, reduce access to franking credits, uh, just as they promised they weren't going to play with stage three tax cuts, but we know the Treasurer has been floating balloons as well on that one, flying kites on that one. Uh, So uh, let's see what Labor comes up with. My simple point here is election commitments matter um, and stability of the superannuation system matters as well.
1: The government also doesn't want workers dipping into their super early. Now, your side of politics has said that they should be able to withdraw their own money, but that would just place a huge burden on the taxpayer in the future because everyone We'll need the aged pension. So, how is that a good thing for our children and grandchildren?
2: Well, I think there's two things you might be referring to here. Um, the, the first is extenuating circumstances, where, for instance, someone has been unemployed for 26 weeks, or someone has a terminal illness. Um, they're extenuating circumstances that have been broadly accepted, and and uh, if Labor's proposing to change those, they should be clear about that. I'm not sure that's what they are proposing, but if they are they should be clear about that. Uh, the second is with respect to housing. Um, and the irony of superannuation right now is you can invest in anybody's house except your own. Uh, and that is a, a bizarre set of circumstances. Uh, it, it really does seem very strange uh, that that should be the case. And our simple proposal before their last election, which we've continued to back, uh, is that 1st home buyers should have uh, the ability to invest in home. It's still an investment, uh, invest in their home. It's still an investment. Uh, it will still yield a return over time. And we know those returns have been very strong uh, over over the past years. Um, and so we think that is a very reasonable part of someone's investment portfolio.
1: You also, though, allowed during the pandemic, people to withdraw up to $20,000 from their super accounts to spend on, on whatever they liked. Now, that is not an investment. That does erode their superannuation savings, and with compound interest, uh, could amount to a, a great deal of money.
2: M- make a couple of comments about that. That was a one-off under extenuating circumstances, and there's many people trying to Im- imagine that somehow the pandemic wasn't a set as in extenuating circumstances, uh, but it was, and and we all understood that at the time, which is why that was a temporary. Uh, one-off change. It's certainly not something uh, we would ever want to have to do again. We certainly don't want to be in those circumstances again. But extenuating circumstances have always been part of our superannuation system. Um, It's important to remember that the withdrawals under that were Uh, a a small portion of the total amount that goes into super every year. So it it will make very little difference over the longer term. Maybe for the whole
1: whole system of super, but for certain people, they could make a a significant difference if you didn't have much super to start with.
2: But you are right to say extenuating circumstances should be just that, but the pandemic – uh, was a set of those circumstances, despite the fact that someone like some some are trying to reinvent history, but it was, and uh, um, uh, and and let's all hope we never have to do that again.
1: Angus Taylor, great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us.
2: Good on you. Thanks, David.
1: That's the Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, in the middle of a housing crisis, Tasmanian developers restrict public housing tenants on their sites.
8: But I would question whether or not it is discriminatory and technically even possible. Uh, I'm sure perhaps if it's been happening for quite some time, then there must be a loophole. But it feels really inappropriate.
1: In the coming hours, Russian President Vladimir Putin is expected to deliver a major parliamentary speech outlining his intentions for his country's ongoing war against Ukraine. Expectations are high that Russia is about to step up its military campaign with a fresh onslaught on Ukrainian territory. It follows a surprise visit to Ukraine by US President Joe Biden, where he reaffirmed his commitment to the fight against the Russian invasion. Nick Grimm reports. It took 20 hours of travel by plane, train and automobile for the US President
9: to pull off his bid to upstage his Russian counterpart. Joe Biden braving the air raid sirens over the Ukrainian capital to lay a wreath for the victims ahead of the first anniversary of the war. Thank you for having me.
10: Uh, Presumptuous for me to say this, but I felt it was important that the President of the United States be here the day the attack began. And as the world waits to see
9: what Russia will do next, President Biden had this message for Vladimir Putin ahead of his planned address to his own people.
10: Putin's war of conquest is failing. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now.
9: It was almost 12 months ago that Vladimir Putin delivered another speech announcing his assault on Ukraine. I've decided to conduct a special military operation, he said, to protect people who have been subjected to bullying and genocide by the Ukrainian regime.
3: Putin spoke about his so-called special military operation and he said two things which revealed the imperialist agenda behind his actions.
9: Research fellow at the ANU Centre for European Studies, Dr Sonia Mitzak, says Vladimir Putin wants Russians to believe their homeland is under assault from NATO forces.
3: And, you know, that disinformation tells the Russian people that Ukraine is the aggressor, and that more recently that rhetoric has escalated into a claim that it is now not only Ukraine that is attacking Russia, but You know NATO countries have come together to attack Russia. Now we certainly will see more of that propaganda. Whether or not that coincides with a particular escalation, you know, we have yet to see.
9: And certainly it's a view already taking hold on the streets of Moscow. This woman says it's a pity that people die and they could not resolve it peacefully but I don't want there to be NATO missiles deployed near our borders. And while analysts expect only more of the same from Vladimir Putin, the Russian president will be under pressure to extract himself from what's been a disastrous military campaign to date. John E. Herbst is a former US ambassador to Ukraine, now with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia
10: Centre. Thus far, Putin's rhetoric has been invariably truculent. And I would expect more of that today. It's conceivable, given his difficult circumstances, Putin's difficult circumstances, and the Chinese now talking about coming up with a peace plan, he may say something which is a bow to that expected peace plan. But... If he doesn't, it's either that or it's truculence or perhaps even a combination of the two.
9: Regardless, there are growing calls for the US and its NATO allies to step up their contributions of military equipment to Ukraine. Some argue this is a fight they can't afford to lose.
10: Well, it's it's pretty simple. The US has a vital stake in stopping Putin's aggression in Ukraine. Because if Putin were to win this war of aggression, um, it would not stop. He would be then looking at going after, um, countries that used to be part of the, other countries that used to be part of the former Soviet Union, which happens to include three NATO allies. And that would be a serious danger to NATO.
1: That's John E. Herbst, a former US ambassador to Ukraine, Nick Grim, our reporter. Australia is grappling with a dire shortage of school teachers, with the federal government calling it a crisis. And the most populous state is now looking at boosting pay for its best teachers. The New South Wales coalition government, if re-elected next month, will pay teacher salaries of $152,000 for 800 of the best performing teachers to help keep them in the classroom. But unions and some experts say it's a piecemeal solution to a complex problem, which could leave some schools and students worse off. Here's Gavin Coote.
11: Only a few weeks into the new teaching year, workforce issues are being felt right across the New South Wales schooling system.
12: The teacher shortages are just growing even more, particularly for our smaller communities.
11: Michael Cipher is the president of the Armidale Teachers Association in the state's north, where teaching positions remain vacant right across all
12: subjects. It's taking longer to fill those positions and in some cases uh, there are multiple attempts made and still not filled. It's really shocking to think that a town uh, with a university, a traditional teachers college, the fact that a community like this has teacher shortages is really concerning what other parts of the states are experiencing. How
11: is this affecting the outcomes of students, do you think?
12: I would say it's directly undermining the learning of literacy and numeracy, numeracy skills at primary school level, and it's it's really disadvantaging young people at the HSC. Um, we, we had classes last year where students uh, never had a permanent teacher for the HSC for particular subjects. That meant those students had different casual teachers nearly every day, and in many cases were left with textbooks to teach themselves.
11: The New South Wales Coalition Government's been trying to stem the teacher shortage, by recruiting staff from interstate and overseas. And now Premier Dominic Perrottet is pledging to bump up the pay packet for some of the top performing school teachers if his government's re-elected next month. As part of our plan, teachers will be able to earn up to $152,000. We want our best teachers to be paid more. At the moment, teacher salaries are capped at about $107,000 and the government's hoping a $40,000 pay rise will stop the best educators from leaving classroom positions for higher paid non-teaching roles. Under the government's plan, principals at 50 schools will also be given greater autonomy over hiring teachers. New South Wales opposition leader Chris Minns says the pay boost will only benefit a small number of teachers. They've got to get specific about how they'll reward the 1% of teachers
4: that they'll give such a big bonus to because we need to make sure that the teaching profession is a vocation available to tens of thousands of people in this state because we know that there's
11: been a 30% decline in the number of school leavers that are choosing to study education at university. The shortage of teachers is far from just a New South Wales problem. The federal government's called it a national crisis, and late last year agreed on a plan with states and territories to address the problem. Laureate Professor Jenny Gore is an education expert with the University of Newcastle.
3: It's really positive that the states and territories are coming together to try and hash out a national plan because this is a national problem. It's actually a global problem as well. But I also think we've got to get it right. And the getting it right part to me is more important right now than trying to put in a whole lot of Band-Aid measures and quick fixes that actually are not sustainable or don't address the underlying systemic and societal issues.
11: When you talk about Band-Aid measures, would you put the New South Wales government's pledge, particularly around higher teacher salaries for particular teachers in that category?
3: Yes without question. It's not addressing the underlying issues. It could potentially create more problems than than value. The idea of how we select teachers who should be paid more and how we differentiate them from the rest of the workforce and what the consequences of, of doing so are, I don't think have been terribly well thought through.
11: Jane Heath heads the South Australian Secondary Principals Association and thinks the national teacher shortage is a complex problem that could take years to fix.
7: It's really tricky um, because it's not easy for a teacher to move across Australia and move into different states. It's not even easy to move between different sectors. It should be, but it's not. And I think that's part of what the national government is trying to address in their consideration for the action plan.
1: That's Jane Heath from the South Australian Secondary Principals Association. Gavin Coote reporting. More than 4,000 people are on Tasmania's public housing waiting list and it's only getting longer. But as new subdivisions spring up, it turns out some developers are using restrictive legal agreements to prevent their land being used for public housing. As community housing advocates call for change, the state government's launched an investigation. Alexandra Humphreys reports.
6: Six
13: years ago, community housing provider Housing Choices built three homes on Hobart's eastern shore. They were set to provide much needed accommodation for vulnerable tenants. But, as the organisation's general manager Kim Bomford tells it, it didn't go to plan. There was a covenant um, that had been placed over that particular parcel of land which uh, prevented us from being able to utilise it for people who were um, either public housing uh, uh, or in receipt of public benefits, public benefits around any sort of support. After construction, Housing Choices received a letter from the original landowners, highlighting restrictions preventing the land being used as public housing and excluding tenants receiving government benefits from living there. thinking to myself, how can this be legal, how is this not a discriminatory Practice. They were ultimately forced to sell. And for me, it just really highlighted the fact
5: um, that as a society,
13: we've got a long way to to go. Linmore Holdings is a development company with residential subdivisions near Hobart. It uses covenants that mean the land can only be used for public housing with the developer's consent. And their marketing even highlights that there's no public housing in the area. Director Rob Lynch says covenants are about maintaining. Property values.
4: Well, the reason is that um, people uh, who are all the purchasers don't particularly want to be next to one of the bad apples, and there's not many of them in public housing, but it's just, it's purely customer demand. So um, we have the um, public housing clause in it. It's really not going to make any difference if that is removed off it because of the cost of the subdivisions in the inner city or on greenfield sites.
13: The Housing Industry Association says covenants can be important for preserving amenities and preventing inappropriate construction. But it's worried some go too far and it wants the Tasmanian government to step in. Michelle Adair is the chair of Homes Tasmania and says she's
8: never heard of covenants being used like this. To be honest, I, I was really shocked. Um, I think it really speaks to a lack of understanding uh, about how difficult the market is. She says it needs to stop. But I would question whether or not it is discriminatory and technically even possible. Uh, I'm sure perhaps if it's been happening for quite some time, then... There must be a loophole, but it feels really inappropriate. While community housing advocates are
13: questioning whether the restrictions are discriminatory, Tasmania's anti-discrimination commissioner Sarah Bolt says it's not clear-cut.
0: At the moment, you'd have to look at maybe an individual case as they come along. So, on the you know on the face of it, while they say it seems unfair, uh, it certainly appears to be quite unkind. It doesn't automatically stand as being unlawful under the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act.
13: Ms Bolt says it demonstrates the need for Tasmania to follow states like Queensland and Victoria in developing a Human Rights Act.
0: If you had a Human Rights Act, then you would have legally enforceable rights around issues such as housing, poverty, homelessness, for example. And at the moment, we don't have that. So It's not seen legislatively that the right to housing is a human right in Tasmania.
13: The Tasmanian government is promising to review the practice, worried it might impact on plans to build 10,000 social and affordable homes within the next
1: decade. Alexandra Humphrey's there. And that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can head to the PM webpage for all of our interviews and reports if you want to share them. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then... Have a great night.
0: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. This year, body image activist Haran Brumford was named Australian of the Year recognition of the work she's doing to alter the way we think about our bodies. Today, Taryn's colleague, Dr Zali Yeager, on how governments keep getting messaging wrong and the deep harm it's causing. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.